0: Uh, entering into our second week of the season of Lent, and uh, we are still in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we will be in John for a couple of weeks coming up soon, but we are in Mark chapter 8 uh, tonight, and we will kind of continue with the themes of Lent uh, after, uh, after the talk before communion. We'll have our, our uh, confessional litany like we did, tried last week, that we'll be doing throughout Lent. Um, the, the Tonight's passage to me is a very, it's a very strong one, um, uh, I'm, I'm honestly slightly nervous about this talk in some ways. Uh, I just think it's a, it's, it's a heavy thing that Jesus says here. But I want to give you a little bit of context before we get into it. Again, we're in Mark chapter 8. We'll be in 31 through 38. But uh, because of the way the lectionary kind of takes this little snapshot, you lose a little bit of context, which we need to know that happens right before this in Luke. The The thing immediately before this is the story of Jesus kind of grilling his own disciples about who it is that people out there say that he might be and them giving all these different answers and then him pinning them down and saying, who do you say that I am? And then Peter stepping up, as Peter always uh, did. Uh, he was always the first one to talk. Uh, and he's the first one, first of the disciples that names Jesus as the Messiah. You know, we, you are the Messiah. Uh, in other gospels, Jesus would then go on to tell Peter, you know, you're right. And you are the rock on which I will build the church. In Mark, who is more for brevity than details, uh, all Jesus does is say, Hey, don't tell anyone, and then moves on to the story, as, as he does a lot in Mark. But, so, right before this, Peter is kind of a hero of the story. He names Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, but after this identification, we immediately get Jesus foretelling his own death and suffering, and we have today's scene play out. And it says this the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, that says this. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The Word of God and Scripture for the Word of God among us, for the Word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Now there is just no ducking the teaching of Jesus here. There is no soft-pedaling it or making it a little more palatable. This is rough. Jesus calls Peter Satan. And I don't know if you've ever been given a nickname by Jesus, but this is one of the worst ones you can get. Particularly after the other Gospels, he was just called the Rock, which is a cool name. That's a, that's, you know, that's a wrestler. That's a good professional wrestler you cheer for. And you go straight from Rock to Satan, the adversary, the one who is on the wrong side of things. Jesus here likens the boldest of the disciples, the one who will get out of the boat when the time comes, the one who will pick up the sword and fight when he feels like he needs it. He is the boldest of the disciples and he calls him Satan. He likens this disciple, the first one to understand that he is the Messiah, to the same devil he met in the desert when he was being tempted a few chapters earlier. Then he tells all who are close enough to hear that they have to pick up a cross and lose their lives to follow him. I am not sure that that Jesus has a more powerful or disturbing teaching in all of Scripture than this. And first, for us to really kind of grapple with it, we must first appreciate how absolutely jarring and morbid this pronouncement would have been to his audience. Now, we have the hindsight of knowing the whole story. We display crosses in the churches. We wear them around our necks. We are are accustomed to it as a symbol, and it's a symbol of good news and hope for us because we know the end of the story. They have no such ending to know of yet at the time. For those who originally hear this, this is a very disturbing image. There is no more grotesque image for those ruled by the Romans who constantly are in fear of those who have power over their very lives. This is more morbid than us talking about electric chairs and our in our context or in our culture, right? The cross was an instrument of terror that loomed over everyone's head who was oppressed. It could be waiting for them if they did the wrong thing and it's a horrible, awful thing. It was used to keep people in line. It was used to to help keep them from dreaming too much about something better in the world. It was this nightmarish sword of Damocles hanging over everyone's head. It was functionally a part of what were the public lynchings that threatened them all at the time. It's very disturbing to say. It would be akin to telling a black sharecropper early last century to pick up a noose. It's an awful thing to say. It's an awful thing to think about and consider for those who hear it the first time. We have a different light on it they would not have. And so we should not treat this teaching casually or without care. It's a dangerous teaching. And it's been used in many different ways. In fact, it's been used to encourage some kind of, this is kind of a little bit of how I was brought up, I felt like almost like a spiritual masochism. It's been used like a weapon very often, and especially it's been used to tell people who are oppressed or who are suffering that they can't make claims for their own dignity or a better life and still follow Jesus, right? It's been used as a kind of weaponized version of Christ's servanthood and selflessness. It was the hope of the slave owner that the Christian teachings would help make the slaves more docile and accepting. It's been used for generations by men in power to try and keep women submissive to men and unable to question the behavior of those who were in charge, right? It's just their cross to bear. Of course, neither of those efforts are even remotely good applications of the Bible's teachings or Jesus' teachings, but it shows up a lot. This is is a teaching that can be used conveniently by those in power. In fact, you can always, I think, identify a malignant use of this teaching when things like submission and service and bearing a cross are taught as good things for others to embrace. While a person in power feels no such compulsion to take one up themselves, right? That is not, I think, what Jesus is talking about here, obviously. In fact, I would argue it's precisely the opposite of those kind of malignant teachings. This is a message, a difficult message, for all of us who possess any power. Or have the potential to maybe grasp power over others. And I believe it is an absolutely fundamental part of the good news of God's kingdom to come. I think that we are meant to think back when he calls Peter Satan here. I think we are meant to think back to the last time Christ faced up against the devil. Remember, as Christ was in the wilderness for those 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. He was tempted with three things. And one of those things that he was tempted with was the devil's offer to give Jesus all of the world's kingdoms. I'll give you all the world's kingdoms. That would include Rome, the very place that nails people to the cross and, and holds uh, you know, Jerusalem and all of Judaism under its thumb right then. Those who are crucifying the Israelites. You can have all the world's kingdoms. And Jesus says, no. But inherent in that temptation, inherent the fact that uh, the devil offers this to Jesus, there are a couple things that we should think about. First, it indicates that the kingdoms of this world are the devil's to give. I certainly never brought up to think about it that way. It indicates that the world's kingdoms are the devil's to give, that even the best kingdom of the world is still not the kingdom of God. Secondly, it also demonstrates that to rule from the top down to rule by having power over others was always a temptation of Satan that we should be saying no to. Jesus never viewed having power over everyone as a means of accomplishing salvation. That's our story, not his. Christ came to serve and not be served. Christ taught that the first would be last. Christ taught that we are to love our enemies. Christ did not teach this because he was passive or not tough enough for the world as it was. Christ taught this because it was the only means to the ends that Christ was trying to accomplish. Christ taught to be served and not to serve and not to be served. The first would be last that we love our enemies, and all of these are anathema to the kingdoms of the world, right? There is no kingdom in this world that can operate under those criteria. Even the best of the kingdoms of the world, right? including this country, which I love, and I very much love living here. You cannot implement these things as a posture uh, for the country and still survive as a superpower in this world. It just wouldn't work. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says so explicitly. In John, when Jesus is talking to Pilate before his own crucifixion, and they're wondering why there isn't a crowd of people taking up arms and fighting for Jesus, he says, because my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, we'd be fighting. We don't fight in this kingdom. We don't fight like that. In other words, I think there are two types of citizens of two types of kingdoms. There are those who own the cross and will use it against others. And there are those who run the risk of ending up on someone else's cross. There are those who wield the cross and those who might end up on it. You're either one or the other. And I believe that here we see Christ clearly calling us to the latter of those two groups. So when Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he will suffer, or when Peter rebukes Jesus for saying he will die, he is very literally playing the part of Satan in the desert. He's reenacting the same thing that Jesus has already faced. He has named Jesus Messiah, but he has failed to understand what that means. In the end, I do not think that pick up your cross means that we don't demand or even fight for justice or dignity or kindness or care for the least of these or any of those things. Of course not. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for what is right or what is good. However, it does strictly determine how we are willing to fight for these things. We don't ever own crosses. We are the ones who might end up on someone else's cross we don't ever own them. The only weapon we are permitted, according to Scripture, is the sword of God's Word. And it is sharp in many spiritual ways, but it won't do you well in a bar fight. We don't fight like that. I genuinely don't think there's probably a more urgent teaching for us today, in the American church particularly. This moment in time particularly in an election year, which you've already heard me bring up a couple times in 2024. I think when the church of tomorrow looks back on the church of today, it will scratch its head. The degree to which we as the American Christian church has allowed itself to be defined by politics and political power and partisanship is both deeply disturbing and dangerous. We are killing our own witness in this world. There's an enormous contingent of people claiming Christ and clamoring to say yes to the very thing the devil offered Jesus and Jesus said no to. Claiming Christ and trying to grab up the kingdoms of this world, even though Jesus clearly told us we can't. Now let me be completely clear here. I do not care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a fill in the blank. I don't care. I don't know most answers to most issues. I don't pretend to have all the right answers about everything. I also know for a fact that you can be a sincere follower of Christ and disagree about almost every political issue. I know people of good faith on every side of everything. I really do. I also understand that my job, what my job as a pastor is and what it is not, although a lot of people don't understand that about pastors. I will never endorse a candidate from the pulpit. I will never act like Jesus fits neatly into our inane partisan politics. He does not. I will not tell you how to vote or pretend to be an expert on things I don't really know about. I'm not an economist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not a military strategist. And I know this comes as a shock to you. I'm personally amazed at how many pastors are all of these things and more. It's very impressive. I'm not. I am a dummy in most of these regards and I'm aware of that fact. However, I am supposed to speak clearly on what is called Christian in this world, humbly but clearly. I don't always succeed. That's what I'm trying to do tonight. And I think the American church is trading its birthright and its witness for the perceived power that comes with winning in politics and its bad news. The church keeps saying yes to that which Jesus said no. Right now in our culture, who screams louder for putting others on the cross than American evangelicals? It's what we're known for right now. Every time I have a conversation with someone who's not a part of the church, this is the very first wall I have to try and and bridge with them. First thing I have to get through. We have largely jettisoned all the fruits of Christ's spirit for the chance to dominate our enemies. People who claim to follow Jesus cheer most loudly for the ones who promise to crucify those they most dislike. It is the very spirit that Jesus calls satanic to Peter's face. We want to win. We want to dominate. We want revenge, and it's a problem. And if you think I'm overstating this, In 2022, University of Maryland did a large survey, and when that survey came back, 78% of people who identified themselves as evangelical Christians supported officially declaring the U.S. as a quote, Christian nation. In other words, saying, we want to be in charge. We want this kingdom of the world. We want to tell everyone else what to do. Karl Barth was a Swiss theologian, who maybe most clearly articulated the case against the church of Hitler and Nazism. That grossest of all times when the church and the state got together. And we cannot forget that those crooked crosses hung in Christian churches and was endorsed by the Christian church in that time and place. That agenda was approved by self-professing Christians who liked the power that came with it. And Karl Barth called this trend what it was. He named it what it was, in the time. And what he taught was that the extent to which the church was actually following the teachings of Christ was the extent to which it would always be, and I love this this phrase, quote, an unreliable ally. The church would always be an unreliable ally to any social, political, or governmental order in this world. To the extent we are following Christ's teachings, we will be a, quote, unreliable ally. And I'm afraid we in the American church have become far too reliable an ally of many who have nothing to do with Christ and Christ's kingdom. I know I am sounding pretty self righteous up here right now. But I am pointing to myself here and not just towards those who I might disagree with politically. I have often been convinced about my own, I've also been uh, convinced about my own correctness and righteousness in regards to my own politics. I personally now really monitor how much I take in or listen to politically because it moves me and changes me drastically when I listen to a lot. I will absolutely let my politics disciple me into being on the wrong side of this cross. I find that I will quickly not just root for one person out of principled reasons and cast my vote and call it a day. But instead, suddenly everything will be riding on my candidate winning and it is the most important race and all of the world hangs on this one thing and soon, I want the candidate I dislike and their supporters to not just lose but to get humiliated, to get shamed, to be punished. Suddenly, I have been discipled into believing I have flesh and blood enemies everywhere and everything is at stake. And this is a distinctly unchristian position. I want revenge. I want to dominate. I want to overwhelm. I want to overpower them. I want to put them on the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Very quickly, I'm willing to own the cross. Instead of being able, instead of being willing to risk ever being put on one. This is me I'm talking about. We have to ask ourselves, as Peter needed to ask himself, whose offer will we accept? Christ's or the devil's? Will I love my enemy or will I try to dominate them? Will I bear the sword or the servant's towel? Will I embody the politics of this world's kingdom Or will I be an uneasy ally to all the parties involved? Will we show a different way to this world? I think Christ reacts so strongly and so swiftly to Peter because this really matters. Christ knows this temptation. He understands its allures and its trappings. It was an actual temptation to even Christ. And Christ knows that you cannot follow into God's kingdom and wield a cross. Christ knows that you cannot follow into God's kingdom and hate your enemy. Christ knows that you cannot follow into God's kingdom and dominate your neighbor. And this is a uniquely Christian witness in a world that will never learn this lesson without someone being willing to embody it in front of them. Will we be those people? Will we knowingly risk being on a cross by refusing to nail anyone else to one. This is our story. This is our witness. We cannot sacrifice this or we lose it all. And I'm just as convinced as can be that this year, more so than any time I've known, we've got to lean into this. Otherwise, what are we doing? What's the point? What good story do we have to tell? Every week we pray it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the true kingdom, thine is the true power, thine is the only glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.